Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number 220 of Shut Up and Grind with your host, yours truly, Robert B. Foster. Today, we're going to be talking about improving your relationship with food. But first, if you're joining me over on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. If you're joining me on either of my Facebook pages, please like and share because I know there's lots and lots of people who have who do not have the greatest relationship with food. So this is the episode for them. So please hit that share button. And if you need to know about me, here's a little intro. If you don't need to know about, about me, grab yourself a drink. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of, front of others, like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what you're passionate. starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again. And all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're going to change your life, and that's how you're going to leave a legacy for your children and your family. you got to know your work. All right, so before I bring my guest on, you know i got to do the teachable moment of the day. So with us talking about repairing your relationship with food, I want to take the very last piece of that video that just played where it says you got to know your worth. So I've been on this kick lately with my, my private peeps saying, if you truly love yourself, why are you doing things that hurt you? And when you're eating the wrong foods and you end up getting the bloated feeling or you're tired all the time or you can't focus, like you're doing damage to yourself. It's like, yeah, it might taste good for that split second, but there's lasting effects. So I want you to think about your own self-worth, your own self-love, because if you truly love yourself, you would not hurt yourself. So it's very, I don't want to say it's very easy because people struggle with it just because I found out a way, way to do it doesn't mean it's easy for everyone. So let me put that out there. But the way I do it, it's that 75-25 rule. Like if I know I really, really want something, say for lunch, I'll make sure breakfast and dinner are clean and I make sure I drink plenty of water. That way it doesn't hurt me. But once you start stacking the bad habits, you're now hurting yourself. And so the purpose of this episode is to help you repair your relationship with food. And having that, having that conversation with me is, as far as I know, is the only one in the world who is a doctor and a chef, and he's combined his two talents to, I don't remember what he does. So let's bring him on, and let's have him tell you what he does. Here, Chef Dr. Mike. 
Robert, you got me so fired up, man. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for uh, having me here this morning. And, and what I do, I'm an interventional cardiologist. Uh, I've done that yeah, for many is. decades. Uh, I am also, as you mentioned, a professional chef. And I teach per, uh, culinary medicine. I'm a professor of culinary medicine at the University of Montana. Awesome. Yeah, see, I wouldn't remember all that. So I got, I got some uh, I got questions come, coming in already. We'll get we'll get to those in a minute. But uh, where are you joining me from? Uh, I live uh, right outside of Missoula, Montana, where the university is. So we are finally defrosting for spring, uh, eventually. <laughs> so yeah. a, a little cool some evenings here, but uh, we're looking we're looking forward to rolling into spring. Winters can be a little long up here. Uh, yeah, I'm in I'm in Rhode Island. It's 21 degrees right now, so I, I feel your pain. <laughs> oh, we have a current power sighting. How you doing, sir? Thank, thank you for tuning in. We got Amanda on. Awesome. All right, so let's get a little bit into your background. But before we get there, how would you describe yourself? Well, I, I describe myself kind of in, in three parts. So I would say, as most people are constructed, right, I, I would say, you know, I, I have the soul of a, a shaman the spirit of a pirate and the heart of a hula girl. So that's how I, I put, put it together. That, that's how I would sum myself up. That, that gets all my bits and bobs. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. So in your, in your childhood, did, did you see yourself doing a certain career? You know, that's a, that's a very interesting question, which um, though I've been all over the world, you're the first person to ask me that. And that's really great. <laughs> And, and I would say I did because for me growing up, um, I'm ancient and, and I grew up before the Internet. And, and so I was we moved around a lot. And I was always kind of the new kid uh, on the block, but not in a good, like really popular boy band kind of way that would come later. So, uh, you know, for me as a new kid, it was always rough. And my mom was a great home cook. And so the kitchen and cooking became... Uh, not only a place to create wholesome, delicious foods, but a place to create sort of wholesome, delicious memories and, and a sanctuary of sorts. So I really always had a bent towards food. Um, I love the sciences. Uh, I love medicine and science and, and helping people. Um, I didn't ever see it really manifesting the way it did here. A uh, part of my personal path was shaped by my own challenges uh, that, that took me down this road. Um, but you know, there, there's always a part of me that, that just loved food and the food experience. So first I'll forgive you for calling me ancient. Cause I too was born before the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I want to just touch on something you said about creating the memory. So like I, I, myself, I have five kids and I, I started teaching them all to cook at a young age. So usually like right around seven, you know, I start with easy stuff. So, like, my, my oldest daughter now, she's 19, and she, when I tell you, she can cook anything. Like, she's constantly just coming up with stuff. She's finding re recipes. You're just creating new new things. And, right. and, and it's awesome because I want them to understand that food is fuel. You know, just like your car needs fuel, it's like your, your body needs fuel. Like, it's not just to taste good. Although, there's healthy foods that taste tremendous, you know, but, like, that that relationship starts when they're really really young because if not you're just going to be stuck in a generational cycle if you have bad habits your kids are going to have bad habits and so on and so forth so when did so when did you start seeing seeing food as more than just something to eat 
Well, you know, I, I think really at a young age, because it's, it's all about that food experience. So I want to build on, on what you said, certainly kind of nutrition, um, what you're talking about, kind of that food as fuel is, is a foundational piece. But, you know, we're social primates, right? So yeah. food is so much more. Look at look at your own personal food history. And I bet that nine out of 10, if not 10 out of 10 people would find that their food history kind of parallels their personal history. And when you look at, at the history of food, what you find is really the history of humanity. So food as social primates is really, and has been a kind of form of social currency. So it's, it's really, and it's, and it sustained us. Um, but it's really only been sort of since World War II, a little bit before that, but certainly accelerating since World War II, when we fundamentally changed our food and our food pathways, that there's become this issue about like choosing foods and foods that are healthy and foods that aren't, um, because we've really changed the, the structure uh, for, for most of our history as human beings, nature made food. Everything was organic, right? You didn't pay more for it. <laughs> Everything came organic and natural. That's how it was, uh, uh, you know, made for us and for our gut microbiome. And that's not the case today. So, so it is confusing. It is hard for people. There are a lot of challenges. Um, but as I say, it's it's also not complicated. Kind of what you allude to. It takes effort, but it's not complicated. Yeah, I tell people it takes the same amount of effort to make a a non nutritious meal as it does to make a nutritious meal. It's the exact same amount of effort, you know, and then go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the, the driving forces, unfortunately, you know, we become such a convenience culture. And yeah. so this cheap food, this easy food, really what's come out and what we really address as one of the first steps. Uh, if you came to me and you said, hey, Chef Dr. Mike, um, you know, I've got some folks uh, that I'm working with. I'm getting them fit. Uh, can you help them, you know, address some of their dietary challenges? One of the first things we look for is how much ultra processed food are you eating? Because the data is really coming out and showing. I wrote about this over a decade ago and wrote right when I started writing about it. The first uh, talk and and addressing of this in the scientific literature came about. And it wasn't from the United States. It was from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And an interesting story here, Robert, um, just give me a minute, because it's, it's really fascinating. So Brazil at that time, you know, more than a decade ago, had started to merge uh, in terms of their economy, which meant, right, their population has more money. Well, what happens when a, a, another country has more money? The U.S., uh, big food, big snack, big soda, say, hey, people got discretionary income. We're going to cash in on that. You betcha. Mm -hmm. So they, they uh, started inundating the Brazilian population basically with Western food, American food, big uh, soda, big snack, uh, convenience foods, junk foods, drive through. And all of a sudden, the Brazilian government noticed that their population started suffering what we see in America, obesity, diabetes heart disease, et cetera, that had never existed before. And so they actually went to the U.S., uh, as the story goes, at the United Nations said, can you uh, kind of put a lid on these guys of yours? Because uh, they're destroying the health of our population. And the U.S. said, listen, it's a free market. It's a free world. You know, you, you deal with them yourself. And so what they did was they really took on the challenge and said, you've changed the structure of our food with these ultra processed foods. And so they develop what's called the NOVA classification, 
Um, and, and for the audience, what they really need to know is there's four groups of food and it's that Nova Group 4 that are these ultra processed foods. And over the last decade, they've really come out and shown that those are what correlates with obesity, diabetes, and believe it or not, even early mortality, more than anything else, more than red meat, more than butter, more than saturated fat, more than salt. It turns out it's ultra processed food. Wow. That's, that's so crazy. So absolutely crazy. And getting people to understand that is so difficult because, again, we live in this world like like you stated before the Internet. But like before the Internet, life moved at a much slower pace. You know, at a much slower pace, and but but it was also a more active pace. And I can re- I can remember is like we we would go outside, like we didn't have to be forced outside. We would just go outside, and we would come back in to have lunch and go right back outside. And then the rule was to be back up before the streetlights came on, and that's what it was. Like we were constantly outside, just making up things to play. You know, going out in. I mean, I grew up in the woods, so like going out into the woods and grabbing a stick and. You know, we're just making stuff up, like constantly moving. And we ate what my parents cooked, you know. And I know everyone's upbringing is different, but, like, that's just how it was for us. Like, we never questioned. If they asked us, we would give suggestions. But, you know, we ate what, what they made. And that's just that's just how it was, <laughs> you know. And I do the same with my kids now. It, like, even my two old, older kids, they're, they're like, so what's for dinner? It's like, that's how, how they ask instead of, I want this, I want that. And this isn't to say that we don't, we know, sometimes I'll make fettuccine Alfredo, you know, sometimes I'll make, you know, fried chicken nuggets or something, but it's not the norm. You know, the norm is to give them food that's going to keep them nourished, you know, while they're in school, nourished and alert. And then we'll throw in some, some, some good stuff here or there, you know, some of the indulgences here and there, but it's not the norm. I hear you and I must have grown up as neighbors and, and didn't know it. <laughs> I, I grew up, and, and my mom was great because I used to sit down and I'd be like, oh, mom, not chicken again. And she'd be like, oh, that's fine. Uh, you don't have to eat it. And you can go without dinner. And that was yeah. it. She's like, this is this is right. Burger King. You don't get it your way. You know, I was. <laughs> I say that all the time. <laughs> you know, this was not a democracy. This was this was a mom. You know, and mom called the dots. And if you didn't like it, like you went hungry or you or as I learned eventually and learned those culinary skills from my mom, uh, you know, then could go on and, and make myself something. And, and I want to also um, really compliment you uh, in, in helping your kids learn culinary skills uh, for a number of reasons. One, when the pandemic hit, you know, a number of people found themselves that, you know, that they couldn't eat because they had no culinary skills and their favorite restaurants were closed. Uh, yeah. So it was go through the drive through and get really bad ultra processed food, try to go to the market and buy something that they could put in a microwave because they had no culinary skills. So you're giving your kids, number one, culinary skills, which are, are survival skills, uh, as it yes. turns out with COVID. And the second is that, you know, a number of studies and, and you know, I don't know how it was for you, but we ate a lot of family meals together, not every meal, um, yeah. Because like with you, I, I would come in in the summer, grab something to eat, and you know, go back outside while it was still light, you know, yeah. light and dark. Uh, but you know what the the data has shown is that even just one meal a week, if you can have one family meal a week uh, in the environment that like you've created, what that shows is that when those kids grow up and they're you know young adults and middle aged adults, they're healthier, 
They're making better food choices, um, you know, and, and their overall relationship with food in terms of what they eat and how they eat is healthier. So that goes to what I call the softer edges of the food experience and kind of builds again on, uh, you know, what we talked about with, you know, food as, as fuel being a foundation, but there are all these other blocks as human beings that we have on there. And our food experience is a complicated one. And, and so these relationships that we have, that you have with your kids and that you've set in terms of their relationship with food and their relationship with you through food, these are positive things that are going to carry them throughout the rest of their lives. And, and that's really, really important. Absolutely. So I have a comment here. For some reason, it's not coming through on the screen, but I have it on my phone. It's from Amanda. When we were talk, talking about people make, make, getting stuck in a bad food trap, she said it's because people are hooked on it. Some understand the crap in the food is legit addicting. It's sad. And that's very true. It's like I say it, it's almost criminal. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's almost criminal. Well, it is. And I was having, um, I work with some food addiction specialists uh, as, as aspect of what we do in terms of culinary medicine. So culinary medicine is, is certainly built on the nutrition base, but I'm sure your audience gets by now. We reach out on a lot of different ev other evidence bases. And, I, and, you know, I caught myself being sort of, um, which I'm, I usually am not. I said, you know, I'm just being a little bit of a wimp. I'm being a little bit politically <laughs> correct here because what are the definitions of ultra processed food of these Nova group four foods that we talk about that we really want to cut down and, and avoid because they constitute about 70% of the American diet from age five. Yes, that's age five onward. Yeah. Is that they're what we call hyper palatable. So to Amanda's point, yes, these are foods that are constructed. So how they are manufactured is they, the natural matrix in which the food is served is broken down or degraded, and then it's reassembled. And it's often reassembled with additional layers of sugars, salts, and fats, because from an evolutionary perspective, we are wired to respond positively to those in our dopaminergic or reward centers. And so it very much functions like a drug. And, and I was talking with my friend and, and I was like, well, hyperpalatable, what do we mean by that? We mean it's engineered to be addictive. So you want to eat it and taste it again mm -hmm. and again. And it, and it really is. And it's sort of just a polite way of saying, you know, addictive, but, but absolutely. And, and a lot of studies show that these foods, particularly with the levels of of salt and, and sugar, salt as our ancestors, many people think, oh, well, our ancestors were, you know, herbivores and we lived, you know, in, in trees and ate leaves and, <laughs> and and things like that. But, but the Paleolithic world was a rough place. And so they ate whatever they could find and that included bugs and bits of meat, etc. So we were always omnivores and as omnivores, we have a built-in uh, wiring to seek out salt because we often don't get enough just through our diet. Uh, carnivores do uh, because of the flesh that they eat. You often see they put uh, salt licks out for cows and horses and things yes, like that. Yep. And that's because they can't get it from plants. So we, we often have also have that same wiring. And many people think that all addictive behavior stems from our innate need to seek out salt. And along with salt, uh, is, a, is a desire for sugar because in ancient times, from an evolutionary perspective, it was pretty rare. And so that little burst of energy that you could get from sugar was a valuable thing. And that's really been turned upside down against us and manipulates us in, in by making us respond, 
you know, in a reward pleasure, dopaminergic type of way to these foods. And very, very often that's exactly how they operate as an addiction. We see the same brain pathways light up when people respond to opiates and, and we've done such a great job, you know, managing those in this country. That's <laughs> so true. <laughs> All right. So what was your, so your first love was food? Yeah. You know, um, I was always kind of really into food. Uh, I was always into being outside and athletics and, and things like that growing up. Um, I pay for that now because I was under the, the misconception for many years that I was a talented athlete. Um, apparently I, in retrospect, I was not, and I just managed to like break bones, tear ligaments, tendons, sprain ankles, shoulders, thumbs, you know, you name it. Uh, I, I did it to my body. And, and what I would, would pass along to youth listening to your program is all bills come due many with interest as you get older. Uh, so you feel and, and deal with those things, uh, later on, but I was also very much into uh, science. And so really medicine being a bit of an art, a bit of um, a science and, and working directly with people and helping people always really appealed to me as well. And, and we also get that, you know, uh, I've got to say as a professional chef, we share that joy and that art um, with people who, with whom we prepare food because Really, again, if you go back into sort of the, the DNA of the human species, we started, all right, we're social primates. So you, your ancestors, my ancestors were sitting around the, you know, the African savanna. And one of us decides, hey, you know what? I'm going to grill up a couple of mastodon ribs for all of us. And we all sit around and, you know, uh, one of our ancestors is cooking. Another one starts telling stories. And, you know, there under the African savanna sky, humanity is born. And so... You know, uh, in that way, um, for me, that sharing of food has just a deep interconnection to the human species and in our DNA um, in terms of that shared food experience. And and I think for all professional chefs, that's that's something we tap into um, to share as well. Yeah. So explain the difference between a chef and a cook. Um, well, a chef has professional training. So I've, I've, I have a degree in gourmet cooking and catering. Um, I've sort of been schooled in the business of the culinary arts. And, and I would say, you know, one of the goals in the culinary arts is you're providing a service. It's a service industry. And so obviously it's a business. Uh, so your mind frame is a little bit different because you're running a restaurant as a sustainable business. And, and also that really my idea, what I need to do for you as my customer is put pleasure on a plate. So the ambiance, the food, I want everything to be perfect to give you the pleasure of the moment. And this kind of goes back a little bit to what you were saying when we get lazy and we keep indulging our pleasures of the moment. Um, you know, in culinary medicine, we have a different focus. It's absolutely all about the pleasure of the moment. But we balance that pleasure of the moment with an understanding of the, the health and wellness, com, uh, you know, potential complications down the road. So we have an eye in the future about how is this going to impact, you know, our overall health and wellness, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think a cook is, is more akin to somebody practicing culinary medicine when we cook for our loved ones and we cook for our family 
we're cooking for that pleasure. We're cooking with that love of a professional chef. Um, but we also, you know, we, we want to nourish and sustain and positively create a, a great base for those we cook for. Whereas in the culinary arts, you know, it, it's really all about the indulgence of the moment because that's what's going to bring you back to my restaurant for that next special occasion, dining out. Love it. See, for, for me, just to add on to that, the key word there is art. Now, like, because people people will, will say, oh, look, I'm a chef. I'm like, no, 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 there's a difference. I'm like, cooks, cook what's on the menu. The chefs create the menu. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's that's the difference. Like, Because there's definitely an art form to it, you know? And yeah. then, like, you, you can teach the art form to your sous chefs, but <laughs> it's like you create the art form. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's talk about, you know, the heart of a hula girl, right? Where does that, where does the hula come from, right? Where's that spirit to dance come from? It, yes. You know, come from here. It comes from a place you can't really define. Um, I, I've studied for many, many decades and continue to study, you know, martial arts. And that was very formative in my youth, having had the the good fortune to, to travel to Japan. And, and, you know, people ask, well, where does that, you know, that art come from, whether it be that application in, in medicine and in culinary medicine, or as you said, in the kitchen. And I think you find that, that art all comes from the same place. It may manifest differently for different people. Uh, my wife is an incredibly talented photographer. Uh, she happens to be a professional food photographer, which makes me look good. Um, for her, you know, that artistic, that heart is manifested through the lens of, of the camera. And she just has that that eye for it. Other people, you know, in athletics, other people, you know, uh, in painting, drawing, writing. Um, for those of us in food, you know, it's about those tastes, those textures. And as you said, you know, putting it on a plate so that once you see it, you're thinking, man, you know, I want some of that. Yes. <laughs> Every now and then I'll post pictures of, of my food when I, when I really take take the time to make it all nice, nice. And it's like. I don't even want to eat it. <laughs> it's like it looks so damn good. I don't want to eat it. <laughs> All right. So before we get into the heart of what culinary medicine is, what, what I think people really need to get out of this episode is this. I'll just share a quick story from a guest I had on maybe 30, 40 episodes ago where we were talking about food, the relationship with food. And I shared that I was overweight once in my life, one time. And then in that one time, you know, I finally hit my my mental rock bottom, did what I had to do. I lost 45 pounds in about five months or so, and I never put it back on. And I've had seven surgeries. I have five kids. So like, I have all the excuses in the world of why I could have put it back on, but I never did. And what she said to me was, she said, because you know what it felt like to be fit. And I was like, okay. Cause like I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it like like that. Cause some sometimes you know the way you see the world, like a diehard Democrat will never see the world the way a diehard Republican will. You know, so like just using that as an example. So for me, like I sometimes I just can't identify with people that it's like, do you want to be overweight? Do you want to be tired all the time? Do you want to like not be able to run around with your kids? It's like I don't get it. <laughs> you know, so what what would you say? To, to someone who's just in that generational cycle of bad habits and how can they bring themselves to embrace eating yeah. healthier? 
Yeah, t- time to close your account at the Bank of Bad Habits is the first thing I yeah. say. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I love that and, one. And, and, and it's, as you uh, point out, you know, it's it's not difficult um, in, in terms of the things that we have to do. But, you know, because it's it's not complicated doesn't mean that it doesn't require effort. So, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you really have to sit down and have a conversation with you. You know, are you willing to do the effort? And, and one of the things I really want to I, and, and try to point out in terms of the culinary medicine approach is that we're not really talking about a, a diet the way we so often talk about it in conversation in the U.S. today. So, you know, diet in the U.S. has become a verb, meaning to lose weight. And that immediately becomes associated with deprivation and I'm not going to be able to enjoy anything. And God, if it tastes good, I just have to spit it out because obviously that can't be good for me. And, and back to the original meaning of the word diet, which comes from the Greek diatia, and that actually meant to, to pursue a, a lifestyle in harmony, in, in a harmonious way. And that's really what, what culinary medicine is about. So, you know, it's not about deprivation. You know, it, to give you an example, uh, we'll, we'll walk through one. And, and just tell me, because you and I haven't talked about this. So what's your favorite food? Like if I just said, hey, you and I are going to go out don't worry about healthy or not. Just tell me, you know, is it a pizza? Do you love pizza? You know, is it a hamburger? You know, what, what, what would you want to go out, you know, and, and, and splurge on if you're rocking it's, it's what, you know, his cheat day or something. Either a ribeye or a prime rib. Okay. So I would tell you right away, you've chosen probably some of the healthiest food on the planet um, and that you could eat that, you know, a lot. Now I would say if you're going out, and you're going to a chain restaurant like the Golden Corral, and they're serving you a certain type of meat that's been raised, uh, you know, a certain way, um, fed on uh, GMO types of uh, grains, etc. That's going to affect the quality and the character of what you're eating in, in a negative way. Yes. If uh, you are also then having, you know, some sides that are, you know, the the instant mashed potatoes that are on mm-hmm. that, you know, um, Golden Corral bar, uh, yeah. you know, these ultra processed mm-hmm. foods, again, those are big no-nos. Now, let's compare that because um, I'm going to have you up at my place in Montana and I'm going to get you, you know, a cowboy on bone in, you know, tomahawk <laughs> ribeye. Uh, from my buddy Troy's grass-finished bison, you know, and I'm going to put on that, you know, a plate of veggies that I got at the farmer's market, some local, you know, Montana potatoes, uh, and and that plate of food in front of you is going to be amongst the most healthful that you can eat. That is, the the meal I'm crafting is what we call Nova Group 3 or minimally processed. What you get at the Golden Corral or those other chains is a Nova Group 4, and so you're not going to miss out on anything. And, and I think when you realize that, when people realize that, um, and they start to taste real food again, because again, with this addiction, we're feeling an addiction. We're not even, I think people you probably have back in the day when before COVID, they, they were, they had Cinnabons at the airport that were like, you know, checked luggage. The things were so big and they're mindlessly just stuffing the stuff in their gob, not even tasting their food. Yes. And the corollary to what that person told you is, you know, I've had people come back and tell me, you know, I used to go through the drive through and, and get that food, fast food every day because it was convenient. Didn't even think about it. 
Now I can't even walk into it because when I smell it, it doesn't smell appetizing anymore because I've learned to taste again. I've yes. recaptured my sense of, of taste and I appreciate taste and textures and different flavor profiles of real food. And I don't feel deprived. I feel happy and joyful. And, and we know that that also, how we eat impacts our overall health in terms of yes. levels of uh, and markers of inflammation. So all of this feeds back into a positive feedback loop Whereas those people with the bad habits you're talking about, they're in a negative feedback loop, right? I feel bad. So I'm going to eat a pint of, I'm, I'm having Ben and Jerry over for, for dinner to keep me company. <laughs> and, and what you eat in there actually, you know, physiologically, biochemically lights up your happiness centers. So it, it actually is a drug that's making you feel a little bit better, but then you're depressed after you eat it and you're even worse off and you're in this, you know, negative spin cycle and, and we've got to break that at one point yes. or another in there, whether it's getting people moving and active, you know, with what you do, Robert, whether it's changing their relationship with food and and looking at food differently and maybe sourcing those ingredients differently from what I do. But we've got to get in there and break that negative cycle. Yes. And, and you use the, the key word uh, deprivation because like that's one of those words where, where it's it's a negative connotation. Right, right around there with sacrifice. I mean, sa sacrifice can be taken e either way, but in the food sense, people think, "Oh, well, I have to sacrifice." And I'm like, "You're not, you're not really sacrificing. Like, you're running towards something you really want. Like, if you want to make a million dollars, okay, here's the blueprint. You, if if you want it, you will take the blueprint and go. If you want to be fit for whatever reason you want to be fit, whether it's sports, whether it's just to, just to be healthy, or if you have a condition you're trying to reverse the effects of." You know, here's the blueprint. <laughs> you have to run with it. You know, so it's it to me. You know, like I said earlier, just sometimes it's like I just want to shake people because it's like you say that you want this, but you're not taking the steps. Like if you want this, action follows. You know, it's like action follows. Go ahead. Well, you, you just hit the key thing, right? And, and and you've got to have that action. You've had got to have desire. For me. It comes down to passion. You know, are, did you have a passion to achieve this? I don't think you can achieve anything in the world if you're not really passionate about it. Certainly, you know, you look at what um, I've been through with culinary medicine. I'm a cardiologist, right? So and 10 years ago, I was telling people, listen, it doesn't matter uh, the cholesterol content in the food you eat because the data shows us that that has no effect on your blood lipid levels. And I had friends when I shared my data who were, you know, other academic cardiologists said, Mike, that is great. Love what you're doing. Love what you're preaching. But, buddy, um, I, I can't get behind you. I'll get fired from the university. I'll lose my job. That's, you know, you're, you're you know, uh, you're out there somewhere. Um, good luck to you. And, and sometimes, you know, you got to have the passion to hoist the colors, you know, let those skull and crossbones fly, shoot that, that cannonball across the bow of the other ship and say, no. This is where it's at. And sure enough, just a couple of years ago, the government withdrew all the recommendations, the previous, you know, limit your cholesterol to 300 milligrams per day. Why? Because they look back and they said, the data has never been here for this. And it turns out, you know, a prediction I made a decade ago eventually was proven right. And, and now really from around the world, we're getting all kinds of data on these ultra processed foods. And I'll share something with your audience that, I don't know if it's published yet. It was being published in the Mars. I had a, a, 
a chance to get a sneak, pre, uh, sneak peek at this um, study. And it's called the Aventus Health Study 2. And this is a fascinating study because uh, the Aventus group is one of the blue zones for those who know about that, where uh, in Loma Linda, California, one of a, a handful of places around the world where people not only live to be over 100, but they're very functional. Uh, they, you know, they're active. They've got their neurocognitive function, et cetera. And so the idea was to look at these places and see, you know, is it something they eat? Is it something they do? Is it exercise? You know, what is the, the, the relationship? And, and the first Aventus Health study also was one of the few studies that actually suggested that, you know, if we don't eat red meat and we pursue a vegetarian lifestyle, maybe that's associated with a better and longer life. Uh, and it was, you know, uh, an interesting study. It stood a little bit as an outlier, but it was one of the ones people often pointed to. Well, one of the things that they didn't do in the Aventus Health Study is look at the level of ultra processing. And Loma Linda has a large uh, uh, contingent of vegetarians that tends to be their dietary preference. And vegetarians tend to eat less processed food than the average American because they're often eating, you know, salads and, and less processed mm. fruits and vegetables. Uh, not always, uh, but, but quite frequently. And so the Aventus Health Study 2 went back, looked at over 75,000 people. And it turned out that the only thing that correlated with your risk of dying early didn't matter if you took a vegetarian approach, didn't matter if you took an animal-based approach and diet, was the level of ultra-processed foods in your diet. Wow. Shatters um, a lot of myths. Now, does it make me popular with Kraft, Procter & Gamble, and all these <laughs> other companies um, that are out there that are feeding us and have been feeding us this stuff? But the data is getting to the point where, you know, actually uh, in this month of March, they just started a huge NIH funded study to look at this very question. Uh, Harvard is running the study and it's going to go on for a couple of years. But I can tell you, we already know the answer from other places around the world. So we, we've got to recognize that it's it's how our food is made and not what it is in terms of a label of red meat or pizza or, you know, bread or this or that. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of getting scammed a little bit. Um, a lot of it. Up. Yeah, no, a lot, a lot of it. I mean, the times that I've spent in, in the restaurants, like I've seen, I've seen so much stuff because <laughs> it's all about profit and I won't out the restaurant, but I worked for, for this one place. I was ki kitchen manager there for about four or five years. And we, we, we ended up partnering with Weight Watchers and we were doing Weight Watchers inspired foods. And so, like, you know, in the beginnings, like, things have to be strict because people are on point saying everything else. But everything looks good on paper until you get the line out the door. <laughs> right? You get the line out the door. Then the cook cuts his hand. You know, then, then one of the servers has a family emergency. She has to run out. And now they share chaos. And then now, now it's like, listen, we don't have time to measure. Just throw it in the bowl and let's go. <laughs> you know? So, so it's like, I only share that just, just to say that that people look, just can't believe every little thing, <clears throat> you know? So like, that's the benefit of cooking at home is I control what's going in. A absolutely. You, you control not only what goes in, but you control what stays out. And, and, yes. and that's important. And, you know, and it even goes down to, you know, when you go to a restaurant and things say farm to table. So uh, I used to live in Tampa, Florida, uh, before I came up here to university and, uh, there was a big expose in many of the finest restaurants around Tampa that were farm to table. 
they actually looked, are they sourcing where they say they're sourcing? Is this source actually organic and grown on the farm? And in about 90% of the cases, the answer was no. And, and what I will tell people is in answer to that, we uh, have partnered with the American Culinary Federation and, and we accredit industrial kitchens and, and restaurants with something called the American Culinary Federation Culinary Medicine Approved Kitchen. And it's a seal you can look for. You can go to the website uh, of the ACF or American Culinary Federation, look up Culinary Medicine Approved Kitchen, and you can see that seal and look for them. And they have a list of the restaurants and, and other industrial kitchens that we work with to make sure that when you go there, you know you're getting food that is sourced appropriately. You know that 80% or more of the food is not ultra processed. Uh, so you can be assured, you know, you're getting food that's not only tasting great, but but is really good for you in terms of our, our food and nutrition base. Can you define what ultra processed means? Just for Absolutely. people who may not know what that means. No, and 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 it's not the audience. Uh, you know, if you're out there listening to Robert and you're saying, God, I feel silly. You know, Chef Dr. Mike keeps talking about ultra-processed food, and I never heard it before. Uh, six, eight months ago, I was giving a lecture at a dietetic school, right? So this trains registered dietitians. And one of the, the questions I got in the chat afterward was, what's an ultra-processed food? I've never heard of Nova before. So uh, do not feel in the least um, that, that, gosh, you're, you're out of the loop. Um, this is something that actually has been ignored because of the influence of industry in terms of, of our food knowledge and our food inflammation, information and the inflammation, and, and particularly its influence in terms of academic publications, which you know is something people can look up Mary Nestle. She writes uh, exclusively and extensively uh, on food and food politics, does a wonderful job. But ultra-processed foods are a specific class of food. So, so first and foremost, I want people to start thinking, not is that a pizza, but thinking, is that ultra processed or not? With everything, like with the steak we pulled up, is this, you know, an ultra processed, you know, ribeye steak dinner on my plate or is this none? And that, that's a change in perspective that we have to get. And what we want to ask ourselves when it's ultra processed, ultra processed foods are unique. They have the natural food matrix. So the way nature packages it has been destroyed or degraded uh, or otherwise altered. They often contain additives of many different kinds. Uh, and, and these additives are known as MUPS, M-U-P-S, or mar markers of ultra processing. So they're, they're things like additives, they're uh, polysorbate 80 emulsifiers. So again, when I look at a jar of mayonnaise in the store, that's loaded with polysorbate 80. That, that's what keeps that store-bought mayonnaise emulsified and shelf-stable and a long shelf life because it's profitable. When I make mayonnaise at home, which as a chef I have done for over the last decade, I've never bought store mayonnaise in many, many decades, is it's an egg, it's olive oil, it's other fresh ingredients, uh, and maybe a, a neutral oil as well. So it, one, the matrix is degraded. Two, there are these kind of additives. Three, it is produced with a specific aim in mind. That is to make it profitable, to make it shelf stable. So it has a long shelf life because that adds to profitability yeah. and to make it a hyper palatable as we spoke about. In other words, let's let's you and I not be politically correct. Let's make it addictive. So you come back and you want my product more and more and more. 
and and I'll give your audience, uh, you know, a, a simple way to, to uh, neg- de- kind of ne- negotiate around the supermarket, and that's simply to be able to count. So what studies have shown um, in the United States, in New Zealand, uh, in France in particular, where they have a national mandate to decrease ultra-processed food consumption, is I call it keep it to five to stay alive. So if you turn over that label and just start reading the number of ingredients, if there's more than five, there's an 85% roughly likelihood that that product is ultra processed. So when I look at pasta and it says organic Durham semolina wheat, flour, water, maybe an egg made from Italy, that's one product. When I turn over an identical bag of pasta, now the nutrition may read exactly the same, and it's got 14 different kinds of flours and enriched with this and stabilized with that and something added for flavor enhancement and dehydrated you know, yeast extract uh, to increase the flavor profile. That's a, that's a pasta I want to put away. Uh, I don't want to consume that. They are not the same product. So um, hopefully that answers answers the question. That was a little bit long winded. I apologize. No, no, that was thorough. So like, after thorough. that, if people don't know what it is, <laughs> you know, no, like I I tend to, to I don't want to say over explain, but I just want to make sure if people ask me a question, I don't want want you to walk away and be like. I still don't know what it is because <laughs> that's a pet peeve of mine, huge pet peeve of mine. That's why before we went live, when I said I was going to ask you to, to describe yourself, that's why I give you specifically what I'm looking for because, A, people would just be like, wow, that's a great question, you know, <laughs> and then they just look dumbfounded. And then others, I would just get get their resume. So it's like I want to be clear and what I'm, what I'm looking for here, <laughs> you know, so culinary medicine so like what what would be your your definition of that and and, and th- that's another great question and we actually have a very specific definition um, because we teach it at the university so we have to meet academic rigors at the University of Montana and we actually offer uh, two years this July we actually uh, made some changes not in the content but just in the way the the programs run so people can do it at home on their own and offer our introduction uh, to culinary medicine program to the public that comes with a level one certification in culinary medicine from the University of Montana when you successfully complete it. Uh, and, and so we specifically define it as a multidisciplinary evidence-based application of decision-making in the selection of ingredients and techniques used in the preparing of foodstuffs with a goal of maintaining and achieving health and wellness through an optimized food experience. And so there's a lot there to, to unpackage. And, and one of the keys that I said is, is multidisciplinary. So we certainly use a lot of the knowledge that we have gained from nutrition, um, which is, is very different, right? The nutrition is about looking at, as you said, how does food fuel the body? How does an organism stay alive by what it eats? That's a very different focus from culinary medicine where we're focusing on not staying alive and how we uh, catabolize and metabolize and ingest and excrete uh, foods and synthesize these products, we're, we're looking towards health and wellness um, and, and happiness as, as part of our measures as well, because that impacts, right? We know depression is as re- a potent as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease as any cholesterol level. So we know emotions are tied in. They affect the composition of your gut microbiome. 
et cetera, et cetera. So human beings, we're pretty complicated. So we have to pull from all these evidence bases. Uh, one of the, the other things we look at in terms of the application of these evidence bases is we look at sustainability because we have to have a relationship with our food and that includes how our food is produced. So we want it sustainable for you and I. You and I want to sit down and have that delicious ribeye and, and sides and, and enjoy it. Um, but we also want it to be done and come to our plate in a manner that sustains the planet. And that's very important. So we have to reestablish that relationship that we've lost since World War II, as you talked about earlier. Even you and I growing up as kids, you know, I can remember going to the market, you know, in a vegetable stand with my mom and, and, and vegetables in the garden and, you know, these sorts of, of things. I mean, there was a, just a much closer connection to our food that has existed for most of the history of humankind, that is something that's only been really divorced over the last, you know, decade, sort of half century. Um, so, so that really is the difference in, in the focus, kind of where we're coming from, and, and the resources that we draw on in terms of, of culinary medicine. So it's much more broad reaching and, and more holistic in its approach uh, to food than just nutrition. Because what's happened with nutrition uh, in, in my opinion, and in the opinion of, of many others, is becoming it's we become too nutrient focused. So we look at our food in terms of just nutrients, right? How many carbs, or you know, this much percent sat fat, or it's got this percent of R, of uh, RDA or vitamin this or vitamin that. And and I'll share with you uh, a study that was published by Harvard, um, which was the impetus for this big national trial that they're doing. And so what they did is they looked at a group of people stuck in a hospital because therefore you can control what they eat. And they gave them two diets. One was uh, ultra processed foods. One was unprocessed foods. And so there were no ultra processed foods uh, on that. And everybody served as their own control. So you ate one diet for a couple of weeks, cleaned out, had another diet for a couple of weeks. And here's the fascinating thing, Robert. So they made it so the calories were exactly the same. So it wasn't going to be about the calories. Uh, it was yeah. about the quality of the food. Then they did something nobody's done before. They actually absolutely matched it for macronutrient composition. So if we were looking at the ingredient level labels, right, it'd say exactly the same amount of sugars, exactly the same amount of carbs, exactly the amount of, same amount of protein. So what you were getting from a nutrient perspective was completely identical. So from a nutrient perspective, if that's how we, you know, metabolize and eat foods, et cetera, there should be no difference in outcomes. Boy, were we wrong. Huge difference in outcomes. People eating the unprocessed food spontaneously lost weight. People eating the uh, processed food diet spontaneously gained weight. Um, markers of inflammation went up with the ultra-processed diet and down with the uh, unprocessed diet. So clearly... We have to step back from nutrients and go back to the matrix of the food, which is, remember, one of our definitions for ultra-processed food is that we've destroyed nature's matrix. And that's how nature packages all these nutrients for us. So when we look at a food and we look at the food health potential, there's two variables, right? There's a matrix combination. How is this food packaged, right? Because if I drink apple juice, uh, I get a high fructose hit. Uh, because that, that fructose is now free. 
But if I eat an apple, that same fructose is bound in, in the fiber and cellulose and, and other compounds. And actually, it's a very low glycemic index uh, ingestion, and it's not going to affect my body the same way. Even though I'm eating, you know, one's just apple juice, and I'm getting the apple juice by eating the apple the other way. Yeah. And, and so that's the, the matrix effect. So we have to remember all these nutrients first come in a matrix, and then we dissolve that matrix and then that's how we interact with the nutrients. It's not the other way around, right? You, you can't take the nutrients and then make the matrix and get the same effect. And that's kind of what we do in ultra processed foods. And we're finding out that that probably is a huge, huge mistake. <laughs> probably. Yeah. I'll go out of <laughs> like that is definitely a huge mistake. Now, that was a great, great description. So for these last few minutes, I want to just bring it back down and speak, speak like directly to the audience. And um, just like, what are some of your best practices to help people repair their, their relationship with food? So the, the first thing is, is sort of stop and, and look at your food. Uh, many people, you know, if, if you're if you're up to it, you know, they recommend you to know, take a journal of your food for a, a day or two. And definitely, if you're going to do that, include the weekend, because that's often where we kind of fall off the wagon in yeah, terms of what I had my peeps do. Yeah. And and here's a great thing. If, if you don't feel like writing it down, that could be a hassle, you know, this, or that, just take pictures. You got your cell phone. Take a picture of everything mm. you eat for a day or two. Take step away. Go back and look at that food. Hey, you know, man, I, I probably didn't need that 72 ounce Mountain Dew right there, etc. cetera. The, the next thing after we kind of look at where we are is go for the low-hanging fruit. And, and by that, I mean, you know, if you are drinking diet sodas or, uh, in fact, artificial sweeteners just published this week, again, uh, correlated with an increased cancer risk. So these it's not about the calories. It's about, you know, these additives. And, and here's, again, is another one uh, that's looking like really bad long-term effects in, in terms of increased overall cancer risk. And especially it was associated with increased, particularly breast cancer risk. Mm. So... Um, you know, what is that low hanging fruit? Let's, what can we get away from easily like these ultra processed foods? You know, for me, I'll share a personal story. I Man, I was addicted to, to diet sodas. Um, I was working as a, as a resident fellow at the time. Um, I would be chugging, you know, six, eight diet Cokes in the afternoon to get through after I'd been up all night on call, et cetera, and getting through the day. And, you know, I, then I started to drink more water teas, but that still wasn't enough for me, to be honest, right? And I figured out, well, what I was really missing was I love that sort of carbonated fizzy. I love the texture. Mm. I'm a chef, right? I, I love the texture. <laughs> of things. And so, you know, I, I got one of those, you know, soda stream fizzy things. And, and you know, I can't tell you the last time I, it's been decades since, you know, I had a soda. So go for those things that are easy, taken in steps, make a plan, stick with it, talk to somebody like you, um, right? It's all about community. It is next to impossible to do this on your own um, because we don't eat food alone. Food is social currency. Um, so start getting with some folks that are like-minded, start building a community, come, come see us, um, you know, and, and maybe start communicating. We have a, a website for people interested in culinary medicine, share your experiences, share your challenges, etc. cetera. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's probably what you tell, right? You got to show up in the gym. You got to start doing that one exercise, one rep, you know, one bit of walking at a time. Um, it's the same for us, except we do it one bite at a time. <laughs> yeah, I always say focus on each day. Each yeah. day, like like if yeah. someone like if someone wants to lose twenty pounds, 
no, okay, let's just focus on getting one. Okay, yeah. okay, we got that one. All right, let's focus on, oh, okay, we, we went down a half pound. Okay, don't worry about it. Let, let's get the next day. Because yeah. people have to understand it's, it's ebb and flow. And, just, and <clears throat> excuse me. And if you can speak to, to this point too, because uh, you can probably explain it a lot, as I'm sure you can explain it a lot better than I can, is the importance of having treat treat meals to spike your fat burning, your fat burning ho- hormone. Like, is there is there truth in that? Um, you know, I'd say in terms of culinary medicine, when we get away from the ultra processed foods, I'll be honest with you, every meal becomes a treat meal um, mm-hmm. because. I'm cooking whatever I want to eat and, and you start to get into the rhythms. You know, I told you we're starting to get spring. So I'm getting anxious for some of those spring flavors. I'm going to see it in the mm. farmer's market. You know, peas are coming up. Asparagus is coming in. Um, I'm excited about that, you know. Um, uh, so I'm very much, you know, about the list, trying to listen to the rhythms of nature. Um, it's, it's a powerful, you know, guiding force that we're really connected to in our DNA. And, and I think if you can get um, away from the ultra-processed foods, which is feeding an addiction, right? Like any kind of addiction, whether it be smoking, whether it be drugs, uh, whether it be alcohol, you find new freedoms, you find new strength. Um, and and for me, you know, um, I eat whatever I want pretty much. And and I encourage people to do that. It's, it's not about, with culinary medicine, like nutrition and so much of the Western approach is like Western medicine, right? You come to me as a cardiologist, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Robert, we, we need to get an EKG. We're going to get an echocardiogram. And I'm going to put you, uh, we're going to do a catheterization. And I'm going to put you on these medicines. And I'm going to sign you up for an exercise program. Boom. Um, but culinary medicine, it's all about you coming to me and saying, hey, Chef Dr. Mike, I love pizza. How do I eat a pizza? And I say, well, here's the original version, you know, from Napoli, which is, you know, a group three Nova food, absolutely delicious um, and very good for you with all these things. All the, the lazy stuff about just ordering in and having that crap, literally crap de- de- delivered to your home. No, you can't have that. So it's not about a pizza. It's, it's about ultra processed and not ultra processed. And once we can shift our mindset, man, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's freedom. It's food freedom. And it's delicious. I love it. And, and so you had mentioned earlier about inflammation, you know, because you're calling it culinary medicine. Because I always tell, tell people, like, you can heal a lot of things with food. But now I'm not a doctor. I can't say that. But you are. Yeah, and, and let me give you some some statistics. They're not Chef Dr. Mike's opinion, right? You can go to Harvard website, look it up, the American Heart Association, and you can go to the CDC, American Diabetes Association. So we often see, I mean, how many times are you like watch a TV and you see a commercial for another diabetic medicine to get your di- type 2 diabetes under control, prevent you from having type 2 diabetes? Well, how about if I told you that 90% of type 2 diabetes is preventable with lifestyle changes like diet? like the exercise you have people doing, 90%, right? We have an epidemic, yet I don't see any commercials telling people to stop, you know, going through the drive-through and maybe do a little walking, visit Robert at the gym, you know, for Pete's sake. And for people who already have type 2 diabetes, depending on the literature, anywhere from 60 to 80, 80% are reversible. Now, I don't mean that you're just taking a little bit less medicine. I mean, these are people with normal hemoglobin A1Cs. They're no longer on medication. By by all our measures, they're no longer diabetic. Two out of three people, think of three people you know, 
uh, one of those people will die of heart disease. Okay. Eight zero, 80 percent of heart attacks are preventable, according to the literature, by interventions like diet and, and lifestyle modifications like exercise. So why are we not doing these things? Well, um, they don't they, they they don't put a lot of money in a pharmaceutical uh, pocket. Um, I can tell you from firsthand experience going to these companies that say, oh, you know, we want to help reduce this and no diabetes. We want to help reduce heart disease. They're help, happy to help you screen for more diabetics because that's more customers, but they're not interested in non-pharmacological uh, solutions. They don't put their money where their mouth is. So that's why I'm so grateful to people like you helping people like me get the word out that, yeah, folks, you can take charge of this. Um, and, and it's not, you know, a fait accompli that's that's written in stone. If like your parents and your brother or sister are diabetic, it doesn't mean you have to be. Um, you may be at risk, but it's it's all about what you decide to, to do. And, and you have some control over that. Yes. And even if you do have it, you can reduce your risk of complications by taking charge of things. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I like to say there are very few things I think that food can't fix in terms of at least um, we can lessen the risk of significant morbidity. And certainly when we look at the ultra food processed uh, the levels of ultra-processed food consumption and our risk of early mortality, study after study after study shows when we cut those down, we risk our, we lessen our risk of, of dying early um, and being healthier. Yes, I, I had, I had um, a couple guests on the show prior. One had systemic lupus and the, the doctors pretty much told her, you know, there's not much else we can do. So she started re researching foods and was able to reverse her effects through food. And then uh, one of my volunteer clients, she she started a juicing company. I don't remember the illness she had, but it's prevalent in Black women. But pretty much same scenario. She started juicing, and just all of a sudden she started fe feeling better. You know, so she started a company to help other other women with that with that condition, and it's huge. So like with me, I'm 47. I'm still very, very active. I was out on the basketball court the other day with a bunch of kids, right? And so when I first get out there, you know, they see the gray hair. <laughs> they, they think I'm going to be, you know, this, whatever. But and then it's like they're arguing over who's going to guard me, <laughs> you know? I'm like, you guys are arguing who's going to guard the old guy, <laughs> you know? But but it's like it's a priority for, for me to stay in shape because I'm an athlete. I've always been an athlete. You know, it's like people, people will say, oh, I heard you were an athlete. I'm like, I am an athlete. <laughs> it's like, that's my driving factor. So, like, I urge people and I urge the people listening now, you got to find what drives you. You know, it, it's got to be bigger than I want to lose weight. You know, it's, it's got to be something like, you know, high blood pressure and diabetes does run in my family. And, you know, my, my siblings are always saying, just wait, just wait, just wait. I'm like, I'm, I'm 47 now. Like, how much long am I waiting? You know, because my, my blood pressure is 120, 120 over 75. And, and it's always been there. But it's because I take care of myself. I drink pl plenty of water. And I, I hit that 75, 20, that 75, 25 with my nutrition. And so, like, that's my, my thing is, like, just find what drives you because that will motivate you to want to take those healthier steps. Yeah. And, you know, I, I encourage people, you know, um, I, I can show you how, you know, I can heal with steel by showing you some recipes and using my chef's knife 
or I can meet you, you know, at 2 a.m. in the cath lab and, and put a metal stent in your now occluded coronary artery. A lot of that choice is, is up to you. And, and you don't want it to be the latter. And, and it doesn't have to be. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's a, it does take a little work. It does take effort. Uh, not going to lie about that. Um, but the rewards are, you know, clearly worth it. It's, it's your health and, and not just your health, um, but it's, it's time with your loved ones. You know, I'm, I'm in, in the field of cardiology, interventional cardiology. I've spent my life, you know, with people coming in on death's door. Um, not everybody makes it. Uh, you know, people have been, they've been down in the field for an hour getting CPR and, you know, um, and, and their prognosis is not good. So, you know, I've, I've had to see that. What worries me is I see it happening to younger and younger people um, in this country. You know, when, when I go in to see them at two in the morning, you know, and they're intubated, you know, hanging on to life by a thread and we're getting ready to work and their birth date's 20, 30 years, you know, be, you know, after mine, that's concerning. And, and we're going to see more of it from age five onwards. 70% of, of the diet of the diet of people in this country is ultra processed foods that, as you pointed out, that's way too much. And that's why we're seeing heart attacks in 20 year olds and 30 year olds going for, for coronary artery bypass. And um, we've got to step up and, and address address it. And, and we have the knowledge base to do it. Um, you know, it's it's but it, it does take ultimately, you know, it, it's your health. Um, it's your ship. Uh, yeah. How are you going to how are you going to captain and sail it? Exactly. Like I always say, most people take better care of their cars than they do their own body. You know? Yeah, we, we, we put more thought into picking a cell phone than we do about what we're putting in our bodies. So true. That way. Exactly. Yeah. And in my old intro video, because uh, I was on someone else's po podcast and I said that I'm like, you know, we upgrade our iPhones, we upgrade our Androids, we upgrade our, our computers, our laptops, and just went right down the list. I was like, but we never upgrade here. <laughs> you know, I was like, we don't upgrade right here. And it's like, I am where I am because that's where I put myself. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, I don't I've been through divorce. Like I said, I'm a single parent. Like I have all the reasons why I, I can be walking around with a beer gut, you know, yep. all the reasons in the world and people and people with my butt, you know what? I understand. No, it's like, that's not the standard that, that I have for myself. And like, just, just a case in point. So last year, no, uh, this is probably 2019, and this was before the world went to hell. So I have uh, have gymnastic rings up in my gym, and so one of the, one of the guys went went across, and he was the first one to go across and then come straight back. And so wow. now now I was home, like I don't remember what why I wasn't there, but someone sent me the video, and everyone's right. Oh my god, that was amazing! That was amazing. I said he pushed off the wall. <laughs> you know, it's like, so like when, once he got there, before he came back, he kicked off the wall to get momentum. I was like, nope. I was like, I, I, do, I do not give false praise. <laughs> you know, it's like, if you want praise out of me, you need to do it properly. But I do that not to, to be a jerk. That's the standard I hold for myself. And like my clients know that of me. Like we we do things together. We go on hikes, like we go to the rock climbing gym, we do Spartan races and in tough mutters. And they like they know in my mindset, I always have excellence in the mindset. It's like I don't I don't train for mediocrity. It's like I train for excellence. You know, and it just when you have that mentality, yes, I would rather cook my own meals than than eat out. 
You know, it's like you, you'll take those extra steps. I make sure I drink four of these a day to get adequate amount of water. You know, are the, the does juice taste better? Yes. I mean, I haven't like you. I haven't had soda in ages. You know, but like there are other things that may taste better, but that's not going to get me or keep me right here where I want to be athletically. And so, like that's why I just want to reiterate to people: what is it that drives you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I've, I've cooked professionally, um, which anyone who's watched the cooking shows knows how, how that goes uh, in, you know, in terms of uh, demanding. And like I said, I'm an interventional cardiologist. At 2 a.m., you know, I'm, I'm what's between, you know, a lot of times death's door uh, for somebody. And, and we don't I don't tolerate uh, I can't tolerate, um, you know, any kind of, of um, standard less than than the best. Uh, it always has to be the best. Uh, we can't, we literally cannot afford, you know, a slip up. And, and that's why, you know, when, when I did cook in, in the kitchen, went back in the kitchen after, uh, you know, working in interventional cardiology and people were like, wow, you know, like you said, I'm not trying to be a hard ass, but, but that's where we come from. Right. Um, you know, if you make a mistake in the kitchen and you're just like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it again. You don't get to do that uh, when somebody's life's on the line. Um, every single time has to be the best. And what I'd leave folks with is, you know, to me, the difference between good and great in terms of outcomes, um, whether it be in the kitchen or whether it be in the, in the cardiac catheterization laboratory is attention to detail. So it's all those things that you talk about focusing on. And, and for me, the difference between good and great, you know, is, is, is attention to detail. Awesome. All right. So let people know where, where they can find you. Oh, so if you head over to www.chef.mike, that's chefdrmike.com. Um, all the information is there about uh, social media, where you can follow us, recipes you can look at, uh, the culinary medicine program uh, that we teach at the university and also available to folks. And they, we've got some links to the CMAC that you and I spoke about, Robert, that they can uh, see uh, that goes over to the American Culinary Federation. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not famous. So uh, if you want to drop a line, I'll get back to you. Uh, if I don't get back right away, give me a day or two. Probably means I've been on call and up all night, but I answer all my own uh, emails and Facebooks and Instagrams uh, uh, personally. So love to hear from you. Love it. So thank thank you for joining. I love your enthusiasm. Like you thank can you, tell, man. you can tell that you really enjoy what you do. That's awesome. Well, it's easy. <laughs> you, you make you get my so you got me so excited before we I even got on. <laughs> that's what most people. That's what most people say. It's like I've been on a couple other podcast where I'm like, I can't wait till this is over. <laughs> it's like, they know that like, there's just no energy there. There's no enthusiasm. It's like, you know, this is your show. It's like, how, how do you, like before I even come downstairs, I'm upstairs with, with my daughter. I'm just like podcast day. Let's go. <laughs> if you're not excited about being here, you know, I, how am I going to get excited about being here? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, this is great. All right. So I'm going to get you hooked up with some of my, my other podcast friends too. Awesome. Well, awesome. Continue, continue spreading the word. And uh, I'm sure I'll have you back for a, um, I do, I do panels once a month. Oh, and great. So, so I actually have quite a few people in the, in the food space as well. So I'll get you guys all on and we'll have a nice round table conversation. Love it. Love all it, right, man. Anytime. Right. Love you, brother. Thanks. And right. thanks again for, for having me on. My pleasure. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Shut Up and Grind. 
We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. Robert has over 20 years experience pouring his knowledge and expertise at many events in the service and fitness industry, as well as secondary schools and universities. He has a true passion for helping others break through the barriers that are holding them back. To book Robert B. Foster to speak or to reach out, go to robertbfoster.com. Till next time, shut up and grind.